Welcome to Bach Lab by Emanuel Music, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia, and in this episode, I'm joined by Emanuel Music's artistic director, Ryan Turner, to speak with composer Rena Esmail ahead of our performance of her piece, This Love Between Us, on Saturday, October 1st. Rena shares about her style of composition that includes both Western and Indian classical music traditions, how her piece, This Love Between Us, came to be, and how her work brings people together across cultures. We also think about her piece in context at Emanuel Music, from Ryan's pairing of it with a complimentary composite cantata to what they hope for an audience to take away from this concert of blended traditions. Don't miss This Love Between Us at Emanuel Music on Saturday, October 1st at 7.30 p.m. Join us in person or via live stream, and tickets are pay what you wish. Learn more at emmanuelmusic.org. So welcome, Rena. I'd love to hear about your journey as an artist, how you got to composition, and then later dive into the piece. Absolutely. It's so wonderful to be here talking to both of you today. Um, so my journey is uh, is an interesting one through through cultures and, you know, through a different repertoire. I grew up studying Western classical music. Um, I was a pianist. And of course, I played a lot of Bach. I was thinking about, since the fact that this is Bach Lab, I thought I'd tell the story about how um, when I was really young and I, I really started playing piano seriously, um, I remember the first time I got to the end of a fugue of the well-tempered clavier, you know, those things are so dense. And, you know, as a pianist, you're playing all these lines at the same time. And my teacher, I had started with a new teacher and he didn't realize that I had never played a fugue before. So he gave me the F sharp minor prelude and fugue. And I was so terrified. And when I made it to the end, I was just crying because I thought I just, I, I finally got here. This is amazing. And I think, you know, Bach was always so challenging for me, but it also just pinged my intellectual sense of how things fit together. And I think I've I've always been so inspired by, you know, the way that he creates counterpoint. And that's something that, that I really reference a lot in my work. But in any case, um, I... Uh, realized very soon, you know, into late high school that even though I loved music, I did not like performing. I'm not a performer. Um, and I kind of freeze on the stage and imagine my delight when I found out that there was a way to be a musician without ever having to perform. I thought this is perfect. I can just write music. I can do all my work behind the scenes and then I can enjoy the performance. So, um, Basically, from the time I was around 18 years old, I, I decided to be a composer. And so I got a bunch of degrees in Western classical composition. Um, and while that was going on, I also realized that, you know, I come from a culture that is not really um, seen in Western classical music or historically hasn't been. And I was realizing that maybe my journey in Western classical music, while I love it and while I just absolutely love all these great composers, it was taking me a little bit away from my own culture. And I wondered if it was possible to follow a dual path. And so that's when I started going down the path of Indian classical music and kind of discovering all of that. So I think my music is a synthesis or maybe not even a synthesis, but it's a, um, a combination of things that I love from both uh, Western classical music and Hindustani, which is North Indian classical music. That's awesome. Yeah, we talk a lot about Adam Manuel, like this idea of yes and like you're not going to put aside either thing. And when you when you don't do that, you have this wonderful, new, exciting thing. And I, I totally hear that in your work. 
Absolutely. And I think the thing about Bach is, you know, all of us who are professional Western classical musicians, we've all encountered it and had some really deep encounters with it. And so I think it's almost a litmus test for what you choose to do with it, you know, because every violinist plays those sonatas and partitas, every cellist plays the, you know, uh, the, the, the Bach suites and, um, every pianist plays the well-tempered clavier. And so, um, it's really what you decide to do with it that shows who you are. Mm, yeah. Um, so this love between us, um, it's not only a beautiful idea, but it's its the name of your piece that we will be performing. Um, how did you get to the place of composing it? What are some of the ideas that sparked this composition? And like, how does it fit into your path in this way? So... I remember around the time that I was writing this piece, I mean, first of all, you can imagine my surprise that I was actually commissioned to write a piece for choir, orchestra, Baroque orchestra, sitar, and tabla. Those were not things that I added, that that was part of the commission. And it was from uh, the Institute of Sacred Music um, at Yale, where I had done all my graduate work. And it was um, amazing to me because it was the the choir, Yale Schola Cantorum, that was from uh, the place where I had done my master's and doctoral degree. It was the orchestra from uh, Juilliard, Juilliard Historical Performance Orchestra, where I had done my undergrad. And then um, Sitar and Tabla from India, where I had done my Fulbright in between those two things. And so it really felt like I was, I was getting this commission that was asking me to engage with the entirety of who I was. So um, it was so awesome and amazing. And I I remember that was a point around 2016 where things were getting a little bit dark politically. Mm -hmm. And um, I started to think to myself, what are ways that I can use my voice to be brave? And at that point, I was starting to see a lot of... Um, things kind of splitting aside and people thinking that someone else is on the dark side of something because of their race or their religion or what they believed in. And essentially what I decided to do with this piece was to go through all the major religious traditions of India and look at their um, texts and see, look at their sacred texts and see uh, where the places were where they talked about being good to one another, about unity, about, you know, um, uh, really uh, loving and caring for one another. Mm -hmm. And I set these texts in English and in the vernacular. So in English, so that you could understand them if you were English speaking and in the vernacular, so you could hear how beautiful they actually were in their original language. And the whole idea is that each of these religions side by side is telling you the ways in which it wants you to be good to the people around you. And so essentially it's saying, you know, it's not, if you're choosing to discriminate against someone, if you're choosing to um, treat someone badly, it's not your religion that's telling you to do that. Mm, yeah. And I think another big thing that comes through is both the idea of all religions say this, but also the idea that like, all religions are unified in saying it. You know, that was something that was really powerful to me. Um, yeah. You mentioned the Fulbright. Um, can you tell a little yeah. bit about that program and like how it affected you? 
Yeah, the Fulbright changed my life um, because up until that point, up until 2011 when I left for India, I was really someone who had not spent much time in my own cultural heritage. I grew up in um, Los Angeles where I still live and I certainly had my parents and my grandparents, all of whom were immigrants around me. But to me, it was just stuff that my family and their friends did and then the outside world. And it didn't really um, occur to me until I was almost 22, 23 years old, the first time I ever set foot in India, mm. that um, there was a whole culture that was so rich and behind uh, the things that my family valued and, and did and our customs and traditions. And so I vowed to myself at that point that I would find a way to go back through music. And so the Fulbright was my way back into my own culture. And I spent this amazing year. I mean, it's so interesting with Fulbrights because the final decisions of who gets a Fulbright are made by the country itself. And the country usually picks things that it needs. So of mm -hmm. course, if you're going in for medical research or like sanitation or infrastructure, those are all things that that India really needs. But if you're going for music, I mean, India certainly does not need any musicians. They have a lot of great musicians themselves. So I felt very lucky to be entering that world and spending a year in India through the lens of music. And so basically, I lived in New Delhi and I would travel all over India to these different music festivals. I'd meet everyone from people who were just local musicians who played in their own towns to major, major international superstars. And I got to actually see Hindustani music in its own cultural setting, which I think for me changed so much because I wasn't studying Indian music through the lens of being a Western classical musician. I was just an Indian girl in India studying Indian classical music. And that just direct connection to my own culture felt so, um, so amazing to me. That's so wonderful. Um, I'm curious, going back to the composition of the piece, um, it was a commission and you did say that you were given the instrumentation, but something that's really interesting and I want to highlight is it's also the instrumentation for the Bach Magnificat, but also with those um, traditional Indian instruments. Was that um, an intentional choice or how does that tie in? Yeah, actually, that was also that was the other piece that was going to be on the concert. And it's fascinating because I did not know Magnificat at all um, up until that point. Like I said, I was a pianist, so I didn't know a lot of these these big, large ensemble works. But um, I've now gotten to know Magnificat so well because this love between us, of course, is always paired with it because of this instrumentation. Um, I think to me, one of the most um, interesting points of resonance is the fact that Indian instruments and Baroque, like early music instruments, have a lot of the same qualities about them. So mm -hmm. there's this kind of warmth, there's a little bit of that kind of fuzzy buzziness to, to about them, you know, the way that, that a harpsichord is, you can imagine a sitar has a kind of similar sound and the drums are all made of, you know, animal skin. It's not, um, uh, they're not synthetic because they're older instruments. And so you, you have a really similar sound world and even the bowed string instruments have, um, this kind of individuality about them because they're, too old to be standardized. And so there are, you know, parts of them that work better than others, but then you get this real individuality. And I think it's the case for um, Western classical instruments too. So it's really um, amazing to think about the pairing with uh, 
period instruments and um, Indian classical instruments and how um, how similar those sound worlds and aesthetics are. Um, and also, I guess, to a certain extent, how similar the traditions might have been, because this was the point in Western classical music where we were still ornamenting freely and improvising and even if things were written down, we were playing it with the spirit of improvisation. And certainly uh, uh, education in early music is an education of understanding how to make use of things like realizing figured bass um, for continual players or learning different ornamentation. And that is probably as similar as uh, Western music will get to um, Hindustani classical tradition. And so I just loved seeing that point of overlap. Yeah, it's such an interesting example of you know, now with like this globalized world, things are coming together that, you know, evolved similarly, but in different places. And like being able to explore all of that is so cool. I know like um, in the Christianity movement, um, that was where that particular point stuck out because the sitar is so, I mean, it's like unison with the Baroque strings, right? right. It's it's such an interesting, like you say, like sonic world. Um, Ryan, do you have any thoughts about this as as leader of an ensemble that does Bach, but on contemporary instruments? Well, I think one of the most incredible things about Rena's piece is that it um, I'm finding the similarities between Bach and non-Western music in a way that I didn't anticipate. Um, and that being... The sort of living in one affect is the best way I can put it. And having the patience to live within that affect. And I think specifically of the, the last two movements, the um, Jainism and Islam, especially Islam at the end. And I have to say, Rina, the thing that I love about the piece is the way it ends with such a meditative quality that you, you know, said no to the big ending, as it were. Um, but this idea of living in an affect and that the patience it takes to do that. And I think that's something we can learn from the Hindustani classical musical tradition is patience. Um, because, and I think it's going to be for our audience as well to not have the big finish for a concert and how to just to be in that moment, to sit patiently, to be meditative and absorb oneself in the sounds and the message and the sort of the, the, the mantra that keeps repeating about concentrate on the light and how the repetition of that, just like it would be the repetition of any Baroque gesture or a fugue, is the thing that sort of sinks deeper and deeper. So, Rena, you talked about the colors and similarities of period instruments. And of course, we have Emmanuel. We play on modern instruments, um, but I also consider us historically informed because so many of our players play period instruments as well and are stylistically informed by what was possible on those instruments and how do we apply it to modern instruments. Um, and you've written the piece that could be done with either. And I'm curious to hear what you think are the differences, because I assume, I mean, it's been recorded on both sets of instruments and what your thoughts are on the differences and similarities and what each brings to it in terms of color, specifically in the way that it, the modern instruments interact with the uh, sitar and tabla. 
Yeah, I mean, I actually think this is a, even a broader point about my music is that, um, you know, there are some composers who want their music done a very, very specific way, and they have just a really clear idea of exactly how they want something to sound. Um, with me, I almost consider what I write just an offering to see what someone is going to you know, give back to me. And I think I learned so much about uh, what a, a group of people or a, a single artist or an orchestra or a choir can do based on um, what, how I'm hearing them interpret my music. And so I think um, with the, with the Baroque setup, certainly there is um, a continuity of sound that is, is really similar, but there's also a kind of a, um, how can I say this? I guess I'll say it the other way is that that with with modern instruments, there is a little bit more presence. And I mm. think there can be a little bit more of a, a driver or a motor under uh, the piece, especially like you were saying in movement six, um, having heard it done both on Baroque and on modern instruments. On the older instruments, there's kind of just a lilt about it. And with modern instruments, there's this drive that goes all the way through the piece. And then, of course, it's interesting because uh, the sixth movement is also arranged in a version for piano as well. And that version, uh, there's a recording where someone is singing the sitar part, an Indian classical singer. And so I just think um, I like my music to be malleable because it teaches me so much about what the possibilities are. Um, so I uh, yeah. Yeah, I noticed um, when I was watching recordings of this, um, there's even the opportunity for, you know, the soloist to sing in the Indian classical versus the Western classical way. And I thought that was hmm. just another, um, again, like one of those yes ands. Like, it's interesting. You're, you're so welcome to that because it does, it just gives more art for there to be, you know. Absolutely. Because I think when you're working across styles, you're also building a kind of a community because I've noticed even with this piece, there are there used to be only two people who could play this piece, which were the sitar and tabla player who played it at the premiere. And as other ensembles started wanting to do the piece, I had to start training other sitar and tabla players to be able to handle the piece. And now there's a whole group of people across the U.S. who are just able to play the piece because they've been asked to, to do it. And um, I kind of think that um, a lot of times people will cross into a different genre when there's a venue for them to do that. And so I love the idea that there are people that I can call on to play my new work who have already engaged with a piece like this um, and who know how to follow a conductor, but they play uh, Indian classical instrument. So I think uh, that's also part of what I love is working on the Indian side to ask them to enter the world of Western classical music. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, this is a piece that's forged cross-cultural connections, and that's just one example. Do you want to talk a little bit on that? Yeah, it's it's amazing because I think, you know, when people ask me what I do or what, what I do as a composer, I always think of myself as a creator of systems or environments. So I create this environment, I decide who's going to be there, and I can kind of decide how they're going to interact with one another. And so in this case, because it was really my first time writing a piece for Indian classical instruments um, and large choir and orchestra, I had done a couple other things like that, but never with sitar and tabla before. And so um, I knew I was just exploring my own depths, and I wanted to uh, create these ways for people to be able to rely on one another. Because within Western classical music, 
we're so used to thinking, okay, I know that this instrument is playing this. I'm going to listen into what they're doing and I'm going to respond accordingly. Of course, across cultures, people don't necessarily know what to listen for. And so I was trying to create these connections. So there is this connection between um, the Western percussion player and the tabla player, where sometimes they come in and they lead one another in. And um, even for the premiere, we were looking at sight lines between the sitar and the concert master and the tabla player and the percussionist, so that they'd always have someone in the ensemble who they could sonically hear was aligned with them. And it's fascinating because because in this first performance, um, we, we did a whole tour. You know, we uh, premiered it at Lincoln Center, and then we did it in three venues throughout India. So the tabla player and the Western percussion player actually got to know each other relatively well. And it was funny because we'd be on these tour buses, and I would see them kind of exchanging uh, ideas and talking to one another and really getting to know one another because they had been paired together in the piece. And so... I remember at the end of the the premiere tour, the tabla player gave the percussion player his tablas and said, you know, here, have my wow. instrument. Um, mm. I, I would love for you to learn how to play it. Please continue to Skype me. And, and it was just this really beautiful gesture. And then what was so funny is a few years later, I was telling this story at a conservatory and someone came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I'm that percussionist that you were talking about. And I said, well, did you keep in touch with him? What happened? And they had stayed in somewhat close touch over those those next couple of years. And I just think you know, when on earth do we get to meet musicians who are from a different tradition than we are and have a chance to engage with them so deeply because our performances depend on one another? Um, and I think that's a thing when you create a situation where people are learning to trust one another because they have to trust one another in the piece. Um, they can also... Uh, establish a relationship that just builds from that trust. And I think if that's something I can do with my music, then that's that's like the best thing I could ask for. That's really beautiful. It's interesting you say all this stuff, Rena, because as I've been preparing the piece, and I haven't met with any of the musicians yet, it's all been, you know, the conductor preparation in one's mind. And also hearing from musicians, anxious singers about the language. Anxious singers about, especially the second movement and the and the uh, the bass aria, the Zoroastrianism, right. and also anxious sitar and tabla players that are going to be collaborating with Western instrument, Western players, and this sort of the anxiety that exists on both sides, um, and the, the when they commingle at that first rehearsal, to me it's like this great social experiment that you've created for us. <laughs> And how we feed off each other's anxieties and similarities and how we're going to sort of lean on each other and help each other out. Um, I get the privileged position of being the ringleader that's nervous about the whole thing. And I'm excited <laughs> to see how this works out and how, as a conductor, I can, you know, do what you've done from behind the scenes. Now I have to sort of make this all come together in front of the scene. So uh, it's a long-winded statement but also a question of any advice you have for a conductor for the first time delving into this synthesis of two different styles well i first have to say the fact that you're nervous is actually probably a great thing <laughs> because when we we had the premiere of this piece 
I think for me, I'm always scared when people don't quite realize that it's harder than it seems. Because since there are two recordings of this that exist that are out by different ensembles, sometimes people think, oh, that sounds like it makes sense. Great. Like, let's just dive in. And it's so much harder <laughs> than it seems like it is, especially if someone has not performed the piece before. And so I remember when I was first working um, with the the initial musicians, um, I had wanted a lot of rehearsal time, but the schedule just didn't necessarily support it. So I remember I went to the um, sitar and tabla player and I Skyped with them in India and I said, hey, can I you know, help you work on your parts? Can I, can I do any of this? And they were like, no, 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 we're fine. We're professionals. We totally have this. I was like, okay, great. Then I went to the Western Ensemble and I was like, can we schedule maybe a couple more rehearsals just to make sure that the sitar and tabla player are comfortable when they, they work with an orchestra for the first time. And, you know, they were like, no, no, we're, we're totally fine. We have this down. And I remember going to that first rehearsal and just seeing both parties think, oh my gosh, how are we going to make this work? This is so much more than we had bargained for. And <laughs> I think that that moment of panic and terror, again, is the moment that makes you have to rely on one another. And especially at that time when we didn't have the recording, truly what happened was that I would sit with the sitar and tabla player and I would just sing the sitar parts to the conductor so that the sitar player could hear what his parts were and the conductor could also hear okay this is how this all fits in and so back when we were putting it together i remember it was like oh you could bring the indian musicians this far to the edge of their um you know conception of western classical music and vice versa you could bring the western classical musicians just to this far to their conception of indian classical music and then whatever that gap was in the middle i was filling in that gap and now i think what fills in that gap is the recordings of the pieces because everyone's able to kind of hear it and know how it's supposed to sound and then work their way backward from that sound into what their part is. Um, but I will say that collaboration and, and true collaboration always just takes time. And I know that in our Western concert world, sometimes we have these really tight rehearsal schedules and we can do excellent things on tight rehearsal schedules just because we all have a very similar context and training. But the minute that someone doesn't come from that training, the amount of time it takes to kind of acclimatize someone and make them feel comfortable, um, especially if they're from a really different tradition, is always more than you would expect. But I also feel find that when people really want to dive in and really want to uh, learn and, and grow with one another, um, it happens really quickly. Uh, once they realize what needs to happen, they can always just work towards it. That's a really interesting perspective. And hmm. I'm sure the rehearsals are going to be like, like challenging in the best way, challenging when you learn something new. Um, exactly. I'm curious a little bit about the content of this love between us. Um, you've mentioned it's it's different religions that are prevalent in India. Where did you come to that frame of where are these religions coming from, like in your experiences? And um, how did you decide the specific content of the piece? Yeah, absolutely. So I was trying to figure out which um, religions made sense to include. And especially since it was sitar and tabla, it was a collaboration between Indian and Western classical musicians. I wanted it to reflect um, the major religious traditions of India. So I literally went on census data. And so the the top six religions that, that have the most people in India who um, practice that religion um, were 
I just went ahead and represented all of them. And the one that was actually really small that I felt that I also needed to represent was Zoroastrianism. Um, and that is a, a tiny little religion, but in um, Western classical music, a lot of our um, major proponents of Western classical music that are Indian are Parsi um, or they Zoroastrian. So Zubin Mehta, people like that are all um, Zoroastrian. So I thought it would be uh, really important, especially since there were probably in India a lot of Parsi people who were going to come to the concert and I wanted them to feel that they, they were represented. But other than that, you know, all the other six religions are major religious traditions in India. And I know that there are some other traditions that, I mean, I, I couldn't represent them all. There are so many different um, other traditions, but that was how I chose uh, the religions. And did you like do research into like those specific cultures, sonic worlds in order to kind of represent them in your way? Yeah, you know, every single religion took me down a completely different rabbit hole. And it's interesting because, you know, for example, say you want to set a text in Italian. There are diction coaches. There are people who can translate for you. We have a whole system set up for uh, these Western languages that we sing in all the time. And we don't quite realize that until we go to sing in some language that it doesn't have that same infrastructure and support. So, I mean, for example, my um, I basically for for the um, Christian version for sorry for the Christian uh, movement, I had to go in and figure out okay what is the what is the the Bible most translated into in India and the uh, Christian state in India is Kerala they speak Malayalam, okay so that only got me so far. Finally, I realized there was a violinist friend of mine who was from Kerala. Her mother still spoke Malayalam, so I'm on the phone with her mother trying to try and make sure that the literal translation of the Bible's passage into Malayalam is the correct uh, thing that I'm pronouncing these retroflex consonants correctly. You know, and then on the other hand, uh, for, for the Zoroastrian movement, I remember at one point I was on New Jersey on the phone with someone who I think is from Israel, but was living in some other place. And we're trying to have this discussion about, you know, how to bring this whole thing together. But, you know, so yeah, every single path was just completely different and led me uh, down a, a different rabbit hole. And I, at the end, had worked with 22 different people to get these translations. And I guess in the end, every single movement has a uh, element of the vernacular and of English. Um, and of course, with the Christian movement, the, the vernacular is neither of those things, but I wanted some English and something that was in uh, an Indian language. Um, except for the very last movement, which is um, a translation of Rumi and doesn't have a uh, anything besides English in it. And, you know, I was very weary because in the Muslim tradition, it's considered blasphemous to set uh, text, uh, religious text to music. And of course, this is, Rumi is Sufi Islam, and I think that's maybe the the one place where it's it's still kind of okay. But I didn't want to step on any feet, and so I didn't translate, use any of the Arabic translation just to make sure that uh, people were in the clear. And I think we come from, in Western classical music, we come from this tradition that that everyone completely feels that it's fine to set anything. We can set the mass to music. We can set just any part of the Bible to music, and that's considered uplifting the text. It's not the case in every religion, so I wanted to try to be respectful of that. Yeah, this is like 
almost like an anthropological effort. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, to me, it was like writing the music was the easiest part because that's the job that I'm trained for. That's what I have like four degrees in. But finding the text, you know, you can't just Google things in Pali or in Adamagadi or you, you, you can't just type something into a computer because it's not even the script. You, you know, you're, you're translating through a script. You're doing transliterations. It's, it's so hard to find things without going through people. But I think that's the point right, is that we have to depend on one another to increase our true understanding of the way that something presents itself in the world. And so I certainly put myself in the hands of so many people who led me in these directions. Yeah, I'd love to pivot a little bit to um, this piece as it relates to our upcoming concert. I'm curious, Ryan, like, what was the process of deciding to program it? What is it being paired with? How did you encounter this piece? Well, the first time I encountered this piece was actually through another piece of Rena's that we did last year. The Emmanuel, Emmanuel Church does this service on the winter solstice and they, the longest night of the year, December 21st every year. They call it the Blue Christmas Service. And we're always looking for new and different texts to set. And a colleague of mine who is actually our artistic operations op, um person right now, Brad Dumont, um, tipped me off to a piece of yours, Rena, uh, even after all this time, which is a setting of per the Persian poet Hafiz um, in a translation. And uh, that was my first introduction to your music. This was last December. And as often is the case with me when I learn about a new composer, then I suddenly get really excited. I do an incredibly deep dive and sort of became as knowledgeable as I could and listened to a ton of your stuff. And when I came across this work, obviously it resonated with me immensely. We had just, in fact, so this was December 21st and I listened to the recording of This Love Between Us, I think on December 23rd. And I think it was less than a week before that we had performed the Bach Magnificat. So wow. I had the sounds of the Bach Magnificat in my ear, listening to your piece knowing this was something that would be of interest and then racked my brain about, okay, we just did the Bach Magnificat. So what do I pair with this piece? And as I looked at those texts, I thought, you know what? Bach does this same thing in his own way. And if you look at the complete oeuvre of cantatas of Bach, there's a lot of discussion about love of one's neighbor. Mm -hmm. There's not really one cantata that talks about it throughout the entire cantata. Um, and the work for me that anchored it is Cantata 77, Du sollst Gott dein in Herren lieben, which is thou shalt love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the new commandment. And at the same time that we're hearing this new commandment in the, and I'm going to get a little in the weeds here, musically speaking, um, the continuo is playing a Martin Luther chorale, which is a commandment from the Old Testament, and it's playing it in augmentation, in counterpoint to this new commandment. And it's this idea of these two worlds existing at the same time. And it was that chorus, which has always been near and dear to me, that sort of was the anchor. That coupled with um, the chorale, the first chorale in the St. John Passion, O Grosse Leap, and... I think others may have heard me talk about this. The thing about that specific chorale that always gets me is that 
It's the only time I'm aware of in a Bach chorale where there is a, a fermata that is not at the end of a phrase. And it's on the word leap. Oh, grossa leap. In the first chorale, we stop on the word love. And to me, that's, that's Bach's message from the very beginning, is to make sure we get it. <laughs> oh, great love. And so in this cantata that I decided to create of Bach movements, along with my colleague Pam Delal, those were the two sort of anchors, is the opening chorus of 77 and this chorale from St. John Passion. So together, Pam and I dug through a myriad of texts. When you talk about all these texts, I mean, we looked at... 200 cantatas and parsed through them and figured out which texts were about self-love, which were about love of one's neighbor, which were, which were about love of God. Um, and a lot of the themes that came, rose to the surface were about seeing oneself and others, which is a text from this love between us. Um, Thou shalt love the neighbors herself. Um, talking about taking care of the poor, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, all these things that come from the parables in the Bible that have, you know, parallels to a lot of the stuff that you write about. And I thought, hey, what if we put together box sort of parallel to your piece, Raina? And so it evolved. And now we have a, I think it's a 10 movement work that is a combination of chorales, opening, closing chorus, arias, recitatives that are hopefully portraying a similar message, and then we get to hear that same message in your voice and from a different cultural perspective. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I mean, also just the fact that these ancient texts can give us so much even today. And, mm. you know, some of them are biblical texts, some of them are texts from other religious traditions. But I think sometimes when we're just in our current day and we we have just our nose against the glass and we're just searching and searching and searching for things. Um, there's so much that feels new, but then I think sometimes returning to these old concepts can really give us so much and so much perspective. Yeah. And it's kind of what, what I was reading from your piece, which is, you know, from the beginning, we're all saying the same thing. You know, Bach is saying the same thing. Um, and I think that's going to be a really powerful message at the concert. It's um it's interesting. I was going to say that um, initially the uh, title of this piece was supposed to be The Light is the Same. And it comes from the beginning of that Rumi poem, The Lamps May Be Different, But the Light is the Same. Um, and the reason why I decided not to call it that is because I didn't want some people to feel like I was reducing all religions to being the same, because they're certainly not. And they're certainly, uh, you know, very, uh, very particular. And I didn't want to take away from that. But that was one thought that I also really had that was very strong about the piece is that we're all we have different ways of looking at the divine and of spirituality and of God. And um, yet uh, the essence of what we're trying to, you know, what that brings out in us as humans might be really similar. Absolutely. Um, both of you guys, um, what would you advise an audience member to be listening out for or taking away from the concert? Ryan, maybe you go first. <laughs> you know your audience better than I do. <laughs> this is a concert that I think will be somewhat challenging for our audience, and in a good way. This is something new for Emmanuel. I mean, of course, we've never had sitar tabla. I don't even know if there's ever been in this space. 
And an interesting thing, which you may or may not know about Emmanuel Church, we also have a central reform temple in residence in this Anglican church. So this wildly liberal, open Anglican church has a Jewish temple that's in residence that um, has services every Friday night. So there's already this sort of cross-pollination of cultures and understanding that already happens here. But the reason I say it's challenging for our audience is the idea of hearing a Bach cantata, hearing our audience, we have an incredibly informed audience that comes to hear Bach cantatas every Sunday. And many of them know these cantatas well. So now when they're going to hear a cantata with movements from different cantatas, it might be somewhat disorienting, but I hope it makes them look at these texts in a different way, look at the music in a different way, and then to be able to hear your piece and the, the way these worlds collide um, and to be able to witness firsthand um, musical traditions coming together is, is the thing to take away from it and listening and listening with an open mind and, and finding the, the uh, myriad of similarities. It's so interesting that you say um, that, that you're talking about your audience that way, because I actually think it might be really similar to an audience that goes to listen to a classical Indian concert, because often that audience is really informed too. Like they know the different rags that the singer is singing. They know the particular phrases that um, make up those rags. They're actually a really, really well-informed audience. And a lot of times when the singer will announce from the stage, you know, I'm going to be singing in rag jog, you'll hear in the audience, people will just start singing their favorite phrases out of rag jog, you know, and it's, it's incredible. Um, to, to have that kind of engagement. And I really hadn't felt that in Western classical music, and especially not in new music, because of course, no one knows what to expect when you have a new piece. So strangely, I think your audience might be maybe the best suited to uh, enjoy a piece like this Love Between Us, um, because I just love that kind of dedication, that knowledge, coming in with a certain expectation and coming in to meet the musicians with something. And I'd also say that one of the things that I find about just audiences in general with this piece is that they either come because they know um, something about the Western classical musicians or they come because they know something about the Indian classical musicians. And what is really fascinating is if two people with those two different sets of knowledge are sitting right next to each other, they can be hearing the same exact concert and hearing completely different things because they're mm -hmm. listening through these really different cultural lenses. And I would say for, for anyone who's listening, who comes to the concert, um, if you find that you're sitting next to someone who has the opposite cultural lens, turn to them and have a conversation because that will be the most enlightening, illuminating conversation um, about what you just heard. Yeah, I'll be sure to do that. I, mm. I can't wait. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm just so... I continue to look forward to the concert and to hearing your work in the Emmanuel Music Home. So, oh, me too. I so wish I could be there with all of you. It, I know it's going to be an amazing performance. Great to meet you, Rena, and hear all your thoughts about the music and your passion for what you've done and the way you're bringing people together. Oh, thank you. Bach Lab is brought to you by Emmanuel Music in Boston. 
The music you heard in the introduction and throughout this episode is from Bach Cantata BWV 127, recorded live at Emmanuel Music on February 27th, 2022, and engineered by Seth Torres. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast. Visit emmanuelmusic.org to learn more about us and explore our exciting 53rd season. Thanks for listening.